Please turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. In our text tonight will be verses 1 to 8. In our text tonight, we learn a little bit of the timeline of when it is that Nehemiah appears before the king. When Nehemiah is making his request before the king, we remember this is the same king that Ezra had come before as well. This is the same king that was very gracious to Ezra because of the good hand of the Lord moving the king's heart to be gracious to Ezra and the company that would go back to Jerusalem. Same king. We find that Nehemiah in that first chapter was a cupbearer to the king. So he is in close proximity to the king. Uh, Many theologians believe that he was the favorite cupbearer of the king. He's not a scribe as Ezra was. He's not a scholar as Ezra was. But regardless of that, he's just a layman. But regardless of that, we see how the Lord is going to use Nehemiah very greatly to accomplish great things in the great city of the king. We went through that first chapter last Wednesday, which was one of my favorite chapters, one of my favorite prayers uh, that is given in all of Scripture. As we worked our way through that, we were seeing a number of the ways or the way in which Nehemiah would would ascribe worth to the Lord, would would praise the Lord and, and worship as he is praying to him. He first began by honoring him, who he is, and then he would get to the supplication part of it thereafter. But this is truly a heartfelt prayer by Nehemiah on behalf of the people of Israel. He had learned some great distressing news regarding the people of Israel. He had said or he had heard the news that the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. He says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It affected him to his very core, the city of his ancestors, the city of God, the place in which God had put his name, was not rebuilt yet fully. The walls were still torn down. The gates were still torn down. From the time in which Nebuchadnezzar had come in in 586, the last time he came in and then burned the city, it still had not been rebuilt yet. The temple was rebuilt, many of the other structures being rebuilt, but the walls of Jerusalem were not and neither were the gates and they were open to attacks by enemies. Nehemiah, upon hearing this, perhaps he thinks to himself, as we discussed last week, that if this is still going on in Jerusalem, then, then there's something wrong. Why isn't the Lord blessing? Why, why aren't the, the walls built yet? We remember that from the time that Nehemiah is hearing about this, and where we left off in Ezra, because Nehemiah is a continuation of Ezra, there's about 13, 14 years that have passed. What has happened within those 13 to 14 years, we're not really told. We remember that as we had ended, Nehemiah, or ended Ezra, that the people of Israel had intermingled with the enemies of God, and they had renewed their commitment to the Lord at the end by putting away their unbelieving spouses and all of that. 
They were in bad shape when, it, when, when we got to the end of Ezra. They had began to tolerate the idolatry of the nations, the very thing that had sent them into exile to begin with. Perhaps some of that is still going on. We don't know. But in any event, Nehemiah hears about the state of things in Jerusalem. And he weeps over them. He fasts before the God of heaven and he prays one, one of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture, in my opinion. He has a genuine, heartfelt desire to see the place of his ancestors prosper. Where God would bless them. And, what, and to do the things that God had promised to do if they had been faithful to him. And so he had prayed this prayer and he begins to confess the sins of the people. He's including himself there. We have sinned against you. We have acted corruptly. We have not kept your commandments and statutes and judgments. He prays to the Lord to remember the word which he commanded his servant Moses. Re repeating the things back to the Lord concerning the things that God had promised. Right now it seems as if the people of God are not being faithful because God is not blessing them. And so it must be that they're acting corruptly. Lord, forgive us and remember the word which you had promised your servant Moses or through your servant Moses, that if we were to turn back to you, that you would again have mercy and that you would bless us. At the end of that prayer, we read these words. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who take delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now from the time that he praised this prayer, he had prayed for the Lord to allow him to have favor before this man whom we assume to be the king. He is praying, he's, he's praying <clears throat> on behalf of the people of Israel. That's intercessory prayer. He's praying on their behalf. He's confessing the sins before them and he desires to act he desires to do something, not just sit idly by and mourn. Now from the time that that ends until the time that we begin in chapter 2, we have about a four-month period that has elapsed here. We had this long, magnificent prayer in the first one. We're only told of a very short prayer that he prays here in chapter 2, at least in our text this evening. But we learned some great things from this account in these first eight verses of this chapter. One writer summed it up in such a way to say that those who are the boldest for God have the greatest need to be in prayer. And we see that here. We see a genuine concern for the people of God. We see a boldness on the part of Nehemiah as he is proclaiming his heart to the king, something that could have gotten him killed. And yet his heart's desire was to see the people of God prosper. And so he is bold before the king and he is trusting in God. What a great lesson to learn here of how, of how the people of God ought to be trusting in God. There is a great trust on the part of Nehemiah which we learn here. A trust that, that he knows that he is the sovereign over all. And regardless of whatever happens to him... He knows it is by the hand of the Lord. That is indeed a great trust. What kind of trust do we have in the Lord? What kind of boldness do we have as we make declarations concerning God? 
what is what is our prayers like? We talked about prayer last week, but it's coming up again. It is continually confronting us with this one characteristic of faithful people of God, which is prayer. The scripture tells us to pray without ceasing. There's many texts concerning the nature of prayer and how prayer ought to be. So as we enter into this chapter, as we are working our way through it and we are seeing this the character of this man, Nehemiah, remember this, that even though we are looking and we are seeing what kind of a character that he has and what kind of a heart that he has for God and what kind of a heart that he has for the people of God, understand he's just a man. He's someone who is saved by grace through faith in the coming Redeemer, whom we understand clearly is Christ, of course. But he has a great trust in God and he is totally dependent upon him in this great situation in which he finds himself. And that is indeed a great lesson for us this evening. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We will read the first eight verses of chapter 2 of Nehemiah. Let us hear what the words of the living God say to our hearts. And it came about in the ninth month, excuse me, and it came about in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad, when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And what will you return? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I had said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we again come into your presence, come before your throne of grace. And we pray, Father, we ask that you would guide us through this text and that you would take this passage of Scripture, that you would adhere it to our hearts, that we would learn from it, that we would see your majesty and your glory in it, that we would rejoice in you, rejoice in our sovereign God who controls all things. And Father, I pray that the Spirit of God will move mightily within us in order to accomplish great things for you, to follow in obedience to you, and to put into practice the desires that you give us. Father, we thank you for this passage, and may Christ be magnified in our hearts this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I 
So four months have passed. This is the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This is probably within the, the realm there of 445 B.C. to 444 B.C. He's standing beside the king. He is still affected greatly. His concern for the people of God has not changed in the four months in which he had heard about what was going on until the time he's standing before the king now. Now, this is indeed a genuine concern that he has. He doesn't do like many of us do when we hear certain things in, in other people's lives. We hear about it, we may mourn for a minute, and then we pass it off and we move along to something else. Because we would like to shut off our emotions and to shut off our feelings, especially when it comes to things that would make us feel guilty or feel, make us feel sad or any of those things. Nehemiah had taken a lot of that upon himself. He confessed the guilt of the people of God to the Lord, and it, it has affected him to his very core. His heart is broken for the people of God. He empathizes with them. He is one of them. He included himself in that great confession of, of sin. He is genuinely affected by this. God is not blessing. The people of God must be unfaithful again. Now you think of this. Nehemiah is in Persia. He is serving a foreign king and he is there because the people of God had acted corruptly in the beginning. That set all of this in motion. These are God's covenant people. This is the nation to whom God had said, I chose you out of all the nations of the earth now because you were so great, for you were smallest among them all. Because I decided to set my love upon you. So the Lord had revealed himself to this people. God was not like the gods of the nations. There was no guessing as to who he was or what he had demanded of the people what he commanded of them. He had truly revealed himself to this people, the people of Israel, out of all the nations of the earth. And this people, in order to show their gratitude to him, had acted corruptly and followed after strange gods that can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak, they can't help, they can't do anything. They had elevated the creature above the creator, as the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans 1. And so for that reason, because they had broken the covenant, because they had, had turned their back upon the Lord, the Lord had sent them into exile. And so this is, this is a, a wonderful thing that has occurred when you get to read of the people of God getting to go back home. It is a demonstration of God's faithfulness. I told you it would be unto 70 years. It has been that long and now it's time to go home and let's reestablish covenant. Let's get back to how things ought to be. And the Lord sends a great multitude the first time. And they go back and they, they begin to rebuild. There's a time there that we had went through, of course, in which they had stopped rebuilding. They had, they had uh, difficulties with the surrounding peoples. The work stopped. But through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, they began once more to rebuild the house of God. And everyone was excited again. And then some time had passed. And Ezra gets there expecting to, to see the people of God flourishing. And what he ends up finding when he gets there is that the people of God are once again acting corruptly by intermarrying with the enemies of God. So Ezra is, is there and he, he, he 
he demonstrates the, the severity of what has taken place and the people of God are so moved and they feel the genuine sorrow that they should feel because of what they've done and what they've tolerated. And so they come to Ezra. They say, we will put away our foreign spouses. We will put them away. We will once again commit ourselves to the Lord and to honor Him and to follow in His statutes. To do the things that He has commanded of us as His people. And so there's hope there. There's a great hope even in the midst of a very tragic event that has happened here concerning all that has taken place. And then the people of God, they do that. There's a thorough search among all the people who had married foreign wives or other spouses. And there perhaps are examinations that have taken place. Are you serving the living God? You're still serving your other God? If so, you have to go. Either way, whatever had taken place there, the people of God had once again recommitted themselves to the Lord their God. Thirteen years later, fourteen years later, Nehemiah gets word, still isn't good. And you have to wonder, I mean, you have to understand, I mean, this is, this is a severe situation here. Because if they're not flourishing, they're not prospering, that is not the result of God being unfaithful to them and not fulfilling what He had promised them if they were to honor Him as they should. This is an indication they are acting corruptly again. This is God's covenant people. Nehemiah is part of the covenant people of God and he hears this, he mourns, and he is genuinely concerned. It would be like if we had understood that, uh, that if something had happened to, to the church and the church had fell into to terrible sin, had, had fallen into heresy, our hearts would mourn. Our hearts would mourn for the people that are there. Or even churches that we've pre previously been part of, whom we still love those people, and we desire to see them flourish and to grow in Christ and all of that. If we were to hear that they tolerated great sin in their assembly, and that they were, they were moving into heresy, our hearts would break for them. And, and it should. Think of people that you love. People that you revere falling into false teaching. Going to places in which the Word of God is not taught. The Word of God is ignored for the things of the world. Perhaps many of us indeed have experienced that to some degree. And what did that do? Those feelings and that longing to see them be removed from that environment has never left us. It is constantly there. And it had constantly been there until we heard that things had changed. Why? Because we desire for God to be honored among the genuine people of God. We desire that God would be honored rightly. He would be worshipped rightly. And that those that are truly uh, the Lord's people would, would understand as, as fully as we, as we are able to the majesty of the God in whom we serve, that they would reject those false teachings. And so our hearts yearn for them. Our hearts desire to see them come to the truth of God and that God would and pull them out of that, that false teaching and heresy and, and worldliness and, and everything else that is present within the, the Christian church in America. 
So we can indeed look at this and we can see he is genuinely concerned. He's genuinely heartbroken. And we can understand why. This is the Old Testament church and the city in which God had placed his name. This is where I will place my name. This is where you will come three times a year in order to worship me in the assembly and to rejoice before me. And there is no rejoicing. There is no blessing because the people of God are unfaithful. So Nehemiah is genuinely affected by this to his very core. To the extent that when he goes before the king, he is performing his duties before the king. He takes up wine, he gives it to the king. And it says here, now I had not been sad in his presence. Perhaps even for these four months, he had been able to contain himself to control himself, to, to hide his emotions and to hide his feelings concerning the place of his fathers. On this particular occasion, he was not able to do that. The weight of what was happening continually upon him, the desire and the longing that he had was finally manifesting in a way that perhaps he wasn't realizing that, that he was manifesting it before the king. But that's in, that ends up being what we do. It's very hard to control your emotions and your feelings, especially when you have a great longing for the glory of God and for the people of God to know Him rightly. It's not something easy to do when you hear of terrible things like that that are going on and just to shut it off and put a smile on your face. Because your heart's broken. It's, it's desirous to see God work. To act on behalf of His own glory. So on this occasion, the king notices. And he says, why is your face sad? Though you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. The king notices he's not suspicious is he plotting something on me? Is something taking place here? He understands very clearly that this is sadness on the part of his favorite cupbearer, who is Nehemiah. This is not a good scenario here. Only by the grace of God did the king have favor upon him. If the king is, is with his queen, and this is not, and by the way, this isn't the uh, normal word for queen. This is... Um, perhaps a word of, of the chief woman of the king's harem, perhaps one of his concubines. He's, he's drinking, he's, he's with his concubine, perhaps this is a private meeting, perhaps this is a public one, in any event, he is desirous to eat, drink, and be merry. That's why the cupbearer is there. He wants to to celebrate something. He wants to be joyful. Whatever the case is. And you got this guy that's standing next to you. Who's bringing down the party. Now for the king. The king could have just said. Get this guy out of here. He's bringing me down. But because the good hand of the Lord was upon him. Upon Nehemiah. And the fact of the king. Having perhaps a, a genuine a feeling of friendship 
to Nehemiah or he favored Nehemiah or whatever the case was. He begins to speak to him to inquire what was going on with him. This has never happened before. This is sadness of heart that you're showing before the king. Nehemiah writing here, he says, I was very much afraid because his life was on the line. He's bringing down the king. But this is the time in which this is the opportunity. The king has confronted him. What's he going to do? Is he going to cower back? Is he going to say everything's fine, king? I apologize for letting my countenance fall before you. No. This is his opportunity. This is the opportunity that God had made for him to let his request be made known to the king what his desire was. So he says to the king, let the king live forever. A, a, a phrase that we have heard before, specifically in Daniel. It's a show of respect, show of honor. Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Notice he does not say Jerusalem. He doesn't say that throughout this whole thing here. He keeps referring to it as the city of his father's tombs. Perhaps he didn't want to arouse any suspicion on the part of the king because the king, this particular king, had halted the work in Jerusalem at one time. I think we read that in Ezra 4. He was part of that. So he doesn't want to upset the king. Obviously, the king would know where he's from. The place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. This is my homeland. This is where my God is served. For we have built his house and this city lies desolate. The king said to him, what would you request? So when he asks Nehemiah, what is it you ask of me? That in itself is going to be a great demonstration that the Lord is working in this because the king doesn't say, yeah, I remember when I stopped the work on that. Let's not talk about that. That just, that's no fun for me right now. The king's heart is moved once again only by the hand of the Lord could this be. And so what does he do? What does the king do with Nehemiah? What is it you're asking of me? You have great concern for the city in which you're from, your homeland. What is it you need? What are you asking of me? What does Nehemiah do? He prays. He prays to the God of heaven. This is God who rules over the heavens. That's a great title for, for our Lord. The God of heaven is whom he prayed to. This isn't like chapter 1. We don't have this great elaborate prayer that is set before us. That we can see exactly what it was that he had prayed. Most likely this is a very immediate, quick prayer on the part of Nehemiah. I mean, we're not reading here, King, I need about 15 minutes. I need about 30 minutes and then I'll come back to you. This is, what is it you're asking of me in an immediate prayer on, be, on, on the part of Nehemiah before he opens his mouth? 
This is a quick prayer. This is a prayer for asking God immediately for assistance, for help, for guidance. To speak on His behalf. What is He doing first and foremost? Interestingly, if we look in the New Testament, of course, and we find what Jesus says about prayer and what Jesus says about when you have needs and all of that, what's the one thing that He says first? Even in light of everything that you need, you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's what Nehemiah is doing. The king's opening the door. What do you need? What does Nehemiah do? He prays to the God of heaven, who is the ruler over all the realm of mankind, who rules over the heavens, who rules over this king in whose presence he stands. What a great... Great example, that is. He doesn't go boldly before the king. He doesn't say, you know what? I've thought about this for four months now, and here's my opportunity. Let me just tell you what I've been planning. Perhaps he had been planning. Perhaps he had thought to himself, if I have opportunity to go back, these are the things that I would like to do, the things that would, that, that, that would benefit the people of God. Or maybe he plans throughout these Four months, maybe if someone else is going to Jerusalem, that they can, I can give them these plans, things to start doing. But when the time comes, no one else is there, no one else is being sent, no one else is being inquired of, it's just Nehemiah and the king. Nehemiah prays to the great king who controls the heart of this man. And so he prays. And then he begins to open his mouth and make his request before the king. His boldness here. See, the, see this boldness on his part. Not only of his concern for the people of God. Not only for his dedication to, to prayer in the midst of this whole scenario. But his boldness before the king. I said to the king, if it pleases the king. And if your servant has found favor before you. Isn't that interesting that he would say it that way? He's honoring the king. He's being gracious to the king. But at the same time, he just prayed to the, to the God of heaven. He is the servant of the living God. And he found favor before the great king before he found favor before this king. Send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. This is my request. Now notice something here. One, he is being very bold. And he's being bold, not being brash, not being arrogant, not being prideful as he stands before the king to say, I just prayed to my Lord, and you know what? Here's what I think. He's being very humble. He is being bold in his request, recognizing the sovereignty of God. Here's what I request of you. And if you look at this, this is a very interesting uh, scenario. One, we understand very clearly from Scripture that the Lord moves the heart of a king like a channel of water. He moves it whichever way He wishes. It's in Proverbs. But at the same time, though He would know this, and he trusts God in this. 
yet he still, in honoring the king, in honoring his position, in honoring his, his, his authority, he still makes requests to the king. There are many instances in which we find that, that scenario within Scripture of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. They're together, and yet it accomplishes exactly what God had intended. The king likes Nehemiah, by the way, even though he's being bold. The king wants to know when he's coming back. He doesn't really give a time frame here. We understand later on in Nehemiah that he would have been governor of, of Jerusalem for 12 years, and then he would come back, report to the king, and he would be renewed to governor uh, thereafter. Here's his request. Hmm. Not requesting you. Here's his request. Send me back that I may rebuild. And if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. And Asaph, is, it means Yahweh gathers. The keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house to which I go. And the king granted all of this to Nehemiah because the text tells us that the good hand of God was upon him. Here's his bold request. I want to rebuild. I'd like to have papers that will give me safe passage as I travel through the provinces. And also, it would be great if I had some letters that I could give to Asaph the one who is the keeper of the king's forest, that I could take whatever I need as far as the timbers, that I can rebuild this wall and rebuild uh, the, these, the house to which I go. These are bold requests on the part of Nehemiah, but throughout this whole ordeal, he is trusting in God. The good hand of God is upon him. God had given him this opportunity. God had put these desires in his heart, and he was following through with the doors that the Lord was opening for him. His life was on the line, yes. Perhaps not only his life, but his position before the king. He's enjoying a great position being the cupbearer of the king. Many things are at stake here that we just don't understand or that we, wouldn't, that we would take for granted. He's a cupbearer of the king, so what? This is a very important role that he has. He probably has it very well is what we talked about last week. He's living a pretty good life. And it could be taken away from him at any moment if the king was in a bad mood. But the hand of God is upon him. And he is going to use Nehemiah in order to accomplish these things that Nehemiah so desires back in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is trusting. Nehemiah is bold. Nehemiah is committed to faithful prayer unto the Lord even at a moment that he, that he needs to call upon God before he even opens his mouth. Now, here are some things that we can look from this, obviously. Perhaps we already have them in our minds. One is the genuine concern that we should have for the people of God. This is what we talked about last week as well. It's coming up again. This isn't meaning that your life should be characterized by continual sadness or continual depression, or any of that, 
but at the very same time, your heart should be longing for others within your family because you belong to the family of God and therefore they are your family. And when they are going through the tough times in which they go through, our hearts should be breaking for them. We should have a genuine concern for them that we would lift them up to prayer or that we would find out means in which we might be able to help and to relieve some of the burden in which they bear. To put feet under our prayers is an important part that we often neglect. And prayer should absolutely be present among the people of God. Sincere prayer. Committed prayer. Praying to the God who rules over all. These are some of the things that we talked about last week as we were working our way through that prayer. Seeing some of the characteristics that Nehemiah was bringing, bringing out about our Lord and our, our great God. Recognizing who He is. Because that gives us even greater confidence as we come before His throne of grace. I know who you are because of what your word tells me about you. I have great confidence in you because of what your word tells me about you. And you approach the throne of grace boldly, not irreverently as we talked about, but boldly to receive grace, to honor the Lord your God, to make requests on behalf of others, and to know that as you make requests upon, uh, upon the Lord concerning others or concerning yourself, that you do not defeat yourself so quickly, but understand that God can act and He does act according to His will. There are so many elements of prayer that we often neglect because it's just a simple prayer. It's a shallow prayer. It's a prayer that's already defeated before it ever comes out of our mouth. We have to pray and we have to pray fervently. We have to pray knowing the God to whom we are praying to and to believe what the scripture tells us concerning who he is and what he can do. To make time to pray because this is your communion with God. This is your time for you and the Lord and for you to honor your father. And so you give him the best of your time and you pray what is true about him back to him. And you see the hand of the Lord work. And you rejoice in what it is that God does. Prayer should be as natural to us as breathing. Whether we have set aside time for prayer, or it's a very quick prayer before something is occurring. But we are praying in truth. We are praying in, in, in spirit and in truth, I should say. That is one way in which the scriptures tell us, pray without ceasing. Well, how do, how do we do that? Because we are constantly speaking to the Lord. We're constantly you know, reflecting upon who He is and reflecting upon the scripture and reflecting upon everything. And we are automatically moving to that area anytime something is happening. If there's something going on at work, oh, this is going to be a great, great dilemma for us. Oh, Lord, please have mercy and guide us through this. Or I'm getting ready to go talk to this person. They're kind of upset about things. And this is the honest, honest truth of what I pray so often before I get ready to go talk to a customer who's not very happy. Oh, Lord. Please give me favor before these people. 
And so it's, it's a quick prayer. It's not a long drawn out. But it is a prayer that is grounded in truth. It's not just speaking, passing by. We ought to be understanding that I am in these few seconds, I am speaking to the God of heaven who rules over all, and as his servant, he hears me. Genuine concern for others, committed prayer, boldness to speak what is true, boldness to carry out what God has commanded. You know, there's a lot of people within the Christian faith who think that to be bold means to be very arrogant, means to be very offensive. Well, they're going to be offended anyway. You know, there's no call for that. Not among the people of God. Anytime that we defend the faith, anytime that we are engaging someone else, we do it in meekness and in fear. That's how the scripture tells us to defend the faith in meekness and in fear. But we are bold in the sense that we're not backing down from what we know to be true. These things are true. And so we proclaim them. If it's offensive, let it not be because of our character in delivering it, but by the truth of God being offensive to an unbeliever. Because it confronts the unbeliever with his sin with their falsehood that they're adhering to, let that be what offends the Word of God and not us in our attitudes or our character. We should have boldness, though. As one theologian said, let us never be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. We don't tolerate the intolerable, but in love and in meekness and in fear, we stand firm to what we know to be true according to the Scripture. And that we proclaim. The consequences of what happens thereafter is all in the hand of the Lord. We don't control that. But here's something that I really wanted to get to concerning the application part. There are many instances, or a few instances specifically that come to mind of people that throughout the years in which we have been a church, and others can attest to this, that some have come up and have said, you know, it would be great if we had this. You know, if we, if we had this going on, or, or we, maybe we had this event, or we, we had this opportunity, or whatever. And I remember Jason at one point saying, you know, that's a good idea, why don't you do it? Oh, no, 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 not me, not me. What is it that you see here in Nehemiah? He puts, his, 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 he puts feet under his prayer. He longs for Jerusalem to prosper. He longs for them to, to turn back to the Lord. And when the opportunity comes, he doesn't say, nope, that has to be for somebody else. Instead, he says, this must be what the Lord has called me to do. This is my desire. This is my longing. And the, the Lord has opened up this opportunity. So for the people of God who are in the church, if you have a desire to do something, instead of waiting around for somebody else to do it or just making suggestions, perhaps understand that maybe this is the Lord putting this desire in you for you to do it. 
for you to start it, for you to carry it out, not to wait for somebody else and to keep saying, that's just not for me. It'd be great if we had it. Nobody else has suggested it, but only me. But it's just not for me to do. Maybe unbeknownst to you, maybe you're quenching the Spirit of God. Maybe you're grieving the Spirit of God who is working within you to give you these desires. Desires to implement things that would honor the Lord are good things. And perhaps are a demonstration of what God is doing in you. Well, we read the Scripture and we read those passages when it says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what is he saying? The things that God is doing on the inside, you are manifesting on the outside. The desires that God is giving, you are seeking to carry those out. You know, what does it say even for those that desire to be an elder in the church or whatever? What's the first thing it says? He who desires the office of an elder desires a good thing. How did this even, how did any of that even begin? With a desire in the heart of the person. A desire to, to serve the people of God in this specific capacity begins with a desire. And then as the Lord opens opportunities, then we, then we, we, we take opportunities, we, we take those, I dare say, chances. It's not the right word because there's no such thing as chance. But we take those opportunities to see whether or not this is truly of the Lord or maybe, maybe we're, we're needing to, to try something different. And so the desires that you have, the things that weigh on your heart for the glory of God, things that maybe you would like to see done in the church, maybe something that's not even for necessarily everybody else, but specifically for you in order for you to edify the church or for you to benefit the church, then you, then you have those opportunities to come to the leaders of the church and to say, I have this idea. I had this this, this desire to do this. Maybe you don't know how to carry it out. Maybe that's why you come to, to, to us or come to the deacons and, and, and to, to pour out your heart. But don't wait for somebody else to do what God has given you the desire to do. That is God who is at work in you. Sometimes it could be misapplied. Maybe your desire, but that's when you can have those who love you and who are tasked to, to guide you to come and surround you and say, well, maybe it won't work over here, but maybe we can, we can do this over here. That the church will be benefited by, by your gift that God has given you. This desire that God has placed in your heart. That is... A tremendous lesson to learn here. There is no passing the buck. 
It is God has given me this desire. God has opened this upper, this this door for me, given me this opportunity, and now it's being granted. Don't wait for other people to carry something out. And don't pass the buck. Do you know that every single one of you, every single one of you who are in Christ have been gifted by the Holy Spirit of God in order to benefit the other members of the church? Do you know that? You have been gifted by the Spirit of God. He has given to each a measure of faith. Speaking of that, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God in order to benefit the people of God. To exercise whatever gift that God has given you. Sometimes it's gifts of administration. Sometimes it's gifts of prayer. It's gifts of service. It's a speaking gift. It's a, you know, any other kind of serving gift. There's so many different avenues there uh, to speak of when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit of God. So what is it that God has gifted you with? What is it that God has given you a desire for? And instead of just wanting to sit idly in the church, know that the people of God will be absolutely benefited by what God has gifted you with. Do you know that? You can benefit the people of God. Without question, you can benefit them because God has gifted you. And that is across the board to every believer. There is no believer who has not been gifted by the Spirit of God to edify the church. They don't exist. Everybody has been gifted by the Spirit of God. So let us know what's going on. Where your desires are. Let us help. Let us guide. That's why we're here. That everybody can be benefited from what God has placed in your heart. Put feet under your prayers or your desires. That's what Nehemiah had done. And that's what we need to be encouraging among the body of Christ. You are a vital part of this local body. God has placed you here for a reason. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. You are here by the sovereign hand of God in order to build up the others within the local assembly. You are important. You are vital. Don't pass it off to somebody else. Pray to the God of heaven to give you opportunities. And then as the doors open, then you take those opportunities. And let your driving motivation be that you desire to honor God and to glorify His name in whatever it is. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we thank You for these truths that we have went over this evening. You are indeed the sovereign one 
who controls the hearts of kings. You accomplish all your will, all your desires in heaven and in earth. There are none who can thwart your hand. There are none that can turn and say to you, what have you done? You have declared the end from the beginning and your counsel will stand. Well, Father, how amazing it is. How amazing it is to think and to understand from your word that even though you are the sovereign God who can act at any moment to accomplish anything that you desire, yet you use mere creatures such as us in order to proclaim your glory. You use fallen sinners as us in order to build up one another in the truth of God. You've gifted us to do that. You're the sovereign one. You are the king of the heavens. You don't need us. And yet you have chosen to grace us with this amazing privilege. Father, we thank you and we honor you. Help us to, to indeed seek your honor even more so among the people of God. To honor you through the gifts that you have gifted us with. I pray for all that are here, all that are not here this evening. That you would impress upon us even greater desire to do what it is that you have called us to, that you have gifted us to. That we may honor you and, and benefit the people, the assembly in which you have placed us. Oh, Father, may our church indeed thrive by us being obedient to you. May we indeed honor you in how we treat one another, how we pray for one another, how we intercede for one another, how we have our concerns for one another, that we would demonstrate what it is to truly be a faith family in a church that seeks the glory of God. May you be honored in this local assembly. For we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.